Hello and welcome to the Dockyard Elixir Roundtable. I'm Nathan Long, and I'm a uh, what am I here now? I'm a uh, I'm a staff software engineer at Dockyard. That's right. And uh, I'm Mike Benz. I'm a staff software engineer here at Dockyard. Also, my name is Andrew Barian. I'm an Elixir engineer here at Dockyard. My name is Adam Phillips, uh, and I am an engineering manager here at Dockyard. My name is Brooklyn Myers. I am an Elixir educator here at Dockyard, and I suppose Dockyard Academy. My name is Gustavo, and I am a senior software engineer here at Dockyard. Yeah, so Brooklyn's title is is uh, different, and we're going to get to what that's all about pretty soon. Um, but before we do, uh, I want to let Mike Ben spend some time talking about a new project that he's created, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so hopefully by the time this airs, the pod, uh, the uh, the blog post will be out on this. But um, if you if you saw my talk uh, at ElixirConf twenty twenty one, we wrapped up a project with uh, Veeps as far as um, a lot, their live streaming platform, uh, rewriting that in Elixir. Um, and the big concern there was that the the original version of it was dealing with performance issues, and so we wanted to make sure that the the new Elixir version was was up to par, so we uh, did a number of different um, uh, benchmarks and and analysis of of their platform. And one of the things that we did was we used a uh, flame graph library, and so uh, we we identified a number of issues with or a number of things that that we could improve uh, based on the results from those flame graphs. And so starting uh, where put together a blog post on on that and how we did it in the process. And in in as we were starting to wrap up that blog post, realized, well, you know, what if we took that that uh, flame graph and integrated that into uh, live dashboard so you could easily plug in a, a, a page to the live dashboard and then profile a function call and get a flame graph right right in the dashboard. Uh, so that the the blog post um, went on hold for a week or two, and uh, we uh, worked through building that dashboard page and then rewrote the blog post uh, kind of around that. So uh, like I said, that'll, that'll be out uh, hopefully by the time this, this uh, roundtable airs. Uh, you should be able to read about that. Um, but yeah, basically you, uh, you jump into a live dashboard, you give it a, fun a module, function, uh, module functionality that you want to profile, Click uh, so the the library is named Flame On. Uh, I was after the uh, keeping with the Marvel uh, theme for Human Torch. So uh, you you put the mo uh, module function er function arity in. Click Flame On, and then you trigger that function. Uh, however you however you trigger it, and uh, the dashboard page will then uh, update with the flame graph of that call. So the kind of the most natural one is going to be the a flame graph of a web request, right? Because that's most of your stuff is going to be, especially if you're running a live dashboard, you're most likely a web app. And so the def by default, it'll, um, it will profile the cowboy handler execute function, which is kind of the top, top level for almost any, any of the Phoenix um, uh, live view uh, or uh, dead view uh, controller calls. And so you can, you, you run that and it'll give you, It'll show you a flame chart of where the time is being spent uh, in the plug, and then in the uh, actual request, any any database calls, any uh, anything like that, and 
allow you to really see what, you know, if you have a slow, uh, if you have an issue with something being slow, it'll tell you exactly where it is. And even if you don't, it'll help you point out uh, some ways to improve. So, so, you know, before, before you get that, that wall of traffic. Uh, so you've got, got that. Um, so you've got that, you know, uh, ready to go. Um, one of the things we found in the uh, Veeps project was that, uh, so we, the, uh, on the page, we're displaying uh, the, the time and date of the events, right? So we have had a bunch of different uh, tiles on the screen. You can you know, check out veeps.com, you can see, see, see what it is, but there's, there's a little date in, in there. And in order to make sure that it showed up in the right, uh, the right time and date for the user that's logged in, we needed to, you know, obviously uh, uh, run it through uh, time zone uh, calculations. And the we were using uh, TZ data for those as the time zone database. And that was kind of lagging behind. It was pretty slow. So ran some benchmarks with uh, Benchy and compared TZ data with the TZ library. And it was something like 12 times faster. And so... Uh, we swapped that out and got an immediate speed improvement. Um, again, so the, the flame graph showed us that that's where the time was being spent. And then Benchy told us that TZ was better than TZ data, dropped it in and, and got a, a performance win there. So, yeah, so once once that's out and, and available, uh, I'd love to hear feedback on on uh, uh, how it's been helping out, and, you know. I'm hoping to see a bunch of screenshots on Twitter of, of flying graphs and and uh, and stuff like that. So, looking for feedback. I think this is really great, just because it your project is making this flame graph uh, like generation much more accessible, and just you know, it's it's very quick to go from a question to an answer without having to go through a, a big process. Um, and I liked uh, in, the, in the blog post that you wrote that you were showing, like, if a function calls, you've got, like, a top-level function, and it calls A, and it also calls B, you can see in the flame graph maybe 90% of the time in the top-level function is spent in B. So there's no point in trying to optimize A, right? That's, at best, it's going to, you know, remove 10% of the time. So spend all your effort on B. And, and just giving you that quick visual, like, oh, that's where all my time is spent. Boom. Go, go, right. go work on that part. That's really helpful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that you know, because we we had we had our thoughts on you know where where we might see things that were slow and, and even you know like the 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 time zone database stuff was was cool. But uh, the other thing we found was there was a section where in we have a search there was a search bar and when you click the search bar it drops down and and there's some suggested items already. Well, those were all rendering on the initial load of the page and ninety. Nine percent of the time, you're not actually clicking that that search bar. Um, so I think it was using Alpine to it, it was always rendering it, and then using Alpine to hide and, and to show and hide. So we looked at it, and it was it was like doubling the time of the request. So we just swapped, jumped in, swapped that from from a um, Alpine. You know, always render it to render on when you click the search button. It the drop down then renders it using Live View, and that just saved a whole bunch of of time on the on basically every page because the search search bar is everywhere. So, but that wouldn't have, the, f the fact that it was being rendered uh, server side all the time and then client side shown and hidden would have been missed and we would have been spending all that extra time, you know, during a, a, a wall of traffic uh, working on stuff that no 99% of the users aren't going to actually even see. So, I'm curious about, 
what the flow would be for triggering these graphs. So essentially, if I'm understanding you correctly, you wrap this, this flame on call uh, somewhere in your code base, you walk through and then you reproduce whatever would trigger that. Um, or maybe you could also, if you're running it with uh, the IEX-S, you could just call it manually. Um, is this something that you could like trigger in a test or, or like what are, what are some flows for kind of displaying these graphs easily? Yeah, well, so the, the flow is really, at least for flame on the flow is you open up a, uh, you open up the live dashboard, you click the flame on tab, you, you just tell it what function to profile and you click, you click, you know, click flame on. And then, you know, you, in another tab, you refresh the page or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And then, then when you jump back to the other tab, once that, that, uh, that request is completed, it takes a second and then it, it shows you the, the great, the, flame graph right inside the dashboard. So there's not, you don't, you don't have to jump back into, into anything. You know, all, all my testing has been, you know, I got two tabs open. I, it's a dashboard. I click flame on, swap over to the tab, refresh, swap back, wait a second. It shows up. And then, you know, then that, uh, if you're, if you're doing stuff from, so the underlying, this is the, the eFlambe um, library, which, what the way that that works is a command line, and and this is then how we did it for Veeps was this this uh, command line interface where in IEX you run you run the the eFlambe command to capture a specific function, and then you trigger that function, and then it generates a uh, a file which can then be uh, uploaded to a website called SpeedScope, and so but, but what we're doing is we're triggering that through the dashboard, we're triggering that creating the file and then we're parsing the file and then using that file to, uh, to display the results in live view. Um, so, so there, there is a, there is a CLI way to do this. And that CLI way is, is, is actually the, what we did originally with Veeps, which is, uh, and if, again, if you check out the eFlambe project, there's instructions on how to do that. That's, that's, it's a really simple, we just, we thought we can take it to the next level and, and throw it in the dashboard. So you don't have to mess around. It's available to, to, to the server without having to, be on the command line. Are there any like cautions or caveats for using this in production? Like you gave the example of you want to profile this and you go reload the page, but what if a, a thousand people load that page in that time? Is that right? So, so the caution or caveat that I put in it is don't do it in production. Um, uh, don't do it. So don't do it in a critical production scenario. Um, the so eFlambe uses Mac to swap out. Uh, so it actually swaps out the Cowboy Handler module for a different one. It's its own version of it that adds the trace. And then it runs through the call. And when it's done, it swaps it back. And so if you're if you're dealing with a, you know, a, a critical path or, or a, a real uh, production system that that, you know, can't have issues, I would say don't do that or run it on a separate node. Um, and, you know, only use that, only, only run it against that, that node and don't have your production traffic going against it. What we found, what, what, what we were actually looking at was we were thinking, or at least with Veeps, when we were, when we were looking at it, we were thinking, well, we got to throw a whole bunch of load at the system and then do a, run a flame graph to see where it's slowing down. And what we actually ended up with was that we got as much information about, uh, where the potential issues are. On a system on, that's not under load, as we all I say, all, all the fixes that we that we figured out, 
we found in a system that wasn't under load um, anyway. So uh, yes, there are going to be there are going to be issues that show up when when the system is under load, and so we were running uh, Locust uh, Swarm to to hammer the system, um, but a lot of the a lot of the stuff shows up even if you're not under the load because um, because what what we actually found out was happening when the system was under uh, incredible load and you run a flame graph you you see a lot of the flame graph is actually time spent sleeping and that's because the process doesn't have priority and, and has to uh, and so but that's not that's that that sleep isn't helpful because you can't do anything about that that's simply the fact that the system is that that process doesn't have isn't scheduled and so looking at a system not under load uh is is actually we found to be more more useful because you don't have those extra sleeps in there that that are just uh that you have to then ignore and say oh well that's not not that so so you can use this in dev and find most of the issues that you're going to find yeah um, yeah yeah and then and like i said so if you if you did want to if you didn't want to test under load and see what would happen I would have a separate node that isn't production um, and you know run a locus swarm or, or something against that to generate the load against that and not not don't drop this in and run it in your your production environment because because it, it's swapping the the um, beam files out that's you know obviously that's not not something you want happening on on critical production systems so my thought is how flexible is that display code? Uh, that's currently displaying it in the Phoenix dashboard because the first place my brain goes to this is like, how can I do it in Livebook? So mm -hmm. we could trigger that from Livebook, display that same same view. Are there any thoughts about doing that? Or yeah, yeah. So actually, the um, Flameon is a it's a live view component with a dashboard page wrapper. So it's it, it in it should. You should be able to drop, take that component and drop it into your uh, live view, any 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 live view page, and it should be self-contained enough to just run and just work however you wanted to put wherever you wanted to put it. So if you're not running live dashboard, but you've got a Phoenix app and you know you have an admin console and you want to be able to do this, um, again, you, I would caution against doing it in production. But if you you know if you wanted to do that, you can drop it in your own. Now, uh, as far as Taking that live component and dropping it in live book. Um, I'm not familiar enough with with live book to know if that's possible or or how you would do that. But but all all that to say, it's it's a it's a it's a standard live component that you can use, or you can use the the dashboard page wrapper and drop it in dashboard. So it's it's if you want to add flame onto your to your uh, system that are, is already running live dashboard. It's two lines of code. It's it's the add the dependency and add the entry to the uh, router for live dashboard. I had a bit of a question about because um, you mentioned it can it can help you get insight into how your code is running, what pieces of it might be taking more time. Is there anything that it can do or or already does? Um, beyond the graph itself that could maybe help you get some insight in there? Like, are there any interesting stats as part of it or things that it can do for you or, yeah. Um, I mean, there, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a visualization tool. So um, it, it can, beyond telling you that 
this this function call is taking a long time or this this you know the, the, this and the children of this function call are taking a long time um telling you where to where to focus um i mean that's that's really the primary goal is is uh where where's the time where's the time being spent um and you it does have zooming so like you know if you're like you know you've got a section where you're like you know and I, I know they can't do anything about this but this section here um, you can click on on that block and then it will zoom to that block and then show you the 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 relative time of the children of that block so you know if you you know if your plug your plug's taking a long time your your actual render's fine but your plug's taking a long time you click on the 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 you know plug call um and then you can dig into that and say okay where you know what do i have to where do i where do i look here for uh optimizations that sort of stuff um but yeah it's really just it it so it, it's just a, it's a layer on top of Eflon Bay that gives you visualization inside my dashboard. That's really awesome, and uh, I'm I'm glad you worked on that to make that uh, that tool that kind of visualization available and and like much more accessible to people in in, in the lesser world. So um, hopefully we'll see a lot more usage of that coming up soon. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about the Dockyard Academy, um, Brooklyn. You have been laboring away very diligently at uh, at creating out content for that. Um, just some, some things I wanted to say, like I've been really impressed with what you've done so far. I, I was, um, I was thinking, you know, I'm a programmer who likes to explain things, but you're doing way more than just being a programmer who explains things. Like you've got this whole teaching methodology and like, uh, this conceptual framework for how to teach stuff to students and get them to practice them and, and collaborate. So I'm, I'm really impressed with that. And, um, and also bravo for being brave enough to come on the show and talk about something that's still a work in progress. That's pretty cool. Um, I, as I was looking through, you were showing me some of the stuff that you've got in, in the works right now. Um, and uh, you've got like a, an outline of like uh, getting started stuff, like setting up your dev environment, Fundamentals, which is, uh, I think that pretty much corresponds to the live book, right? Uh, of like going through teaching basics of Elixir, and then you move on to like project development, Phoenix project development, and OTP. Um, so, what uh, I guess what's the, I guess that, that that gives kind of a sense of it. But what's the starting point that you have in mind for students coming in, and what's the ending point that you hope to get them to? in this program? That's a great question. So the starting point that I'm trying to design for, and this is true pretty much whenever I'm creating content or any sort of educational material, is I try to make zero assumptions. I try to start from absolute scratch and build the concepts up as necessary, rather than assuming some sort of prior programming background or um, assuming that, that they already have Elixir experience or, or they already know how memory works. Or, and so I follow this principle called scaffolded design, which is essentially that whenever you explain something, you need to ensure that all the terms you're using, everything that you're using as part of that explanation has already been explained. And so if you're going to talk about something, you need to talk about all the components of it first. Um, and then within that, it's also coming from, you, you have to think ahead to where you want them to go. So often a lesson will start with this kind of what's called backwards design, which is, okay, what, do I, what am I trying to get them to learn? What do I want them to be able to do? 
And then you work your way backwards, figuring out, okay, how, what steps do I need to get them to go through? And so you get all the way to zero and you ensure that there's no like sudden jumps. Now, as for where I'm hoping that the students get to, I have two visualizations in my head. I kind of have the MVP student, the, uh, you know, you have learned what is necessary to uh, graduate from the program, to um, say that you understand the material, you're kind of the baseline student, and anything below that, you need to learn more. And then there's the exceptional student. So the exceptional student has gone above and beyond. They have learned all of the concepts inside and out. They have the ability to work with the tools um, at, a, at a very you know, intermediate level. And so the baseline student, my expectation is, because I'm trying to come from an industry background, right? I don't just want to teach people theory. I don't just want to teach them, oh, well, here's the tools. I want people to be able to do things and to be able to go into companies and be productive members of those teams. So one of the first things I did when I started creating content was pulling different companies about what they want and what they need. And most of the things that I would hear is they need people who can problem solve. Uh, the people who, it's, it's less about knowing specific information about Elixir and having specific knowledge and more about having a problem mindset, problem solving mindset, being able to figure things out, being able to learn um, and figuring out how to incorporate that in teaching material has been really, really fun and really, really interesting and, and kind of taking a bit of a different approach than, well, okay, here's the tool, here's the basics, here's the data types, here's the operators and going beyond into here's some of the philosophy that you should take, here's how you can break down problems, Here you, here's how you can figure out the solutions to problems that you don't understand. And so that's kind of my baseline student. A baseline student might not have come away with every single concept that we've hoped to teach, but they will be good problem solvers and understand, uh, have enough tools in their tool belt that they're able to go into the industry, effectively solve problems, and pick up what it is that they uh, either weren't introduced to or um, didn't pick up at the time. And that exceptional student is more knowledge-based. They have that same fundamental problem-solving skill set, but they also have uh, targeted knowledge of OTP. You know, they are proficient building Phoenix, both DeadView and LiveView applications, and they've been introduced to kind of the core fundamental Elixir concepts. More than introduced, they're capable of, they've used, they have worked with, um, and they're proficient with them. Cool. Um. You showed me a, um, a live book that you have that is going through sort of the fundamentals of Elixir material and, you know, from starting from data types and going up through different kinds of logic. And uh, you, like, you'll explain a concept in, in just prose, right? You're like, here's what Boolean comparison is, is all about. And then now here's like, here's a, a spot for you in the live book to type in something so that you can compare these things and see that you understand, you know, what happens when you do false and, and true or something. Um, and then you just build up to more complex stuff. Like at one point you have the students implement paper, rock, scissors with just Boolean logic in, in the functions because they haven't seen if or cond or, or, or case or whatever yet. And then, 
later on, you have them come back and say, all right, now that you know about pattern matching and multiple function heads, now re-implement paper, rock, scissors using those tools. Um, so I, I really like that approach. And I like that. Um, the way that Livebook enables you to have an interactive tutorial. It's like, you're not just reading a blog post. Now here's a place in the middle of the blog post to type in something and see what happens. And that's, that's really a neat usage of, of, of Livebook. It's been very interesting to see how, because I've gotten some people to run, it, run through it at this point. And what I often notice is they'll run through the material and then I'll ask them, okay, did that make sense? And they'll say, yeah, totally, totally got it. And then they get to the your turn section. And it asks them to do something that is like one-to-one -one related with what they just read. It's meant to be, if you understood it, you can do this. And the number of times they get that like, oh, look on their face and then scroll back up. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, so having, having that little, hey, prove that you actually understood this at the time. Um, recall is fundamental to uh, kind of meta-learning. I'm not a meta-learning expert, but I do know that it's incredibly important to look back and remember what it is that you are actually trying to pick up. And so that is one of the purposes of those section, as well as proving that they actually did under understand it, absorb it, read it. Um, I think everyone here uh, and probably everyone listening can relate with skimming, where we often skim through material and we go, oh, yeah, I, I pretty much got that. But being forced to actually prove that you understood it. And, and if you are, um, the nice thing is that if you're a student who is coming from a stronger background and you do have some of those fundamentals already, that's no problem. You can probably blaze through some of the material, complete those your turns, and it's very easy, I think, to think that you understand something as well. So if you think, well, I already have this knowledge, so I'm just going to blaze through it, but then you get to a your turn and it actually throws you, and you're like, oh, I don't understand what this means. I don't get it. That can also force you to question what your what you already stand, what you already understand, rather. I, uh, so you have a podcast called Elixir Newbie. I don't know if you're still running it. I, I glanced at mm -hmm. it. Um, but you have an episode on, like, I think it's called How to Solve Any Problem. And you're just talking about the general process of you start with something that you don't know how to solve and you break it down into things that you do know how to solve. I think you gave the mm -hmm. example of, like, you're trying to render something complicated on a web page and you don't know how to do that yet, but just render hello world and get that like, Oh, that works. Okay. Now what? Now I can make it slightly more, slightly closer to my goal. Um, and I think that that sort of problem solving skill is what you're talking about. Like you want people to come away with, I don't know how to do this, but I can figure it out in small steps. Um, and I, I like one of the sections that I, I read that you wrote was about uh, enumerating on non enumerables. Like, uh, you want to take a string and break it into characters so that you can enumerate over those characters. And um, like you talked about how you want to, you want to, you want to be able to break down problems into parts you can solve. And so maybe you know, like a good example of that would be you want to count how many times the letter E is in a string and the string module doesn't give you any, anything for doing that, but you know how to count uh, elements in a list. So turn the string into a list and now you have a problem you know how to solve. Um, so I really like that you're teaching that kind of break it down into steps. Uh, and also, I, I'd love for you to talk some more about some of the, the like, besides paper, rock, scissors, there's some of the other exercises and, and uh, things that you came up with, because I think you, you have a lot of fun examples. Absolutely. I'll, I'll definitely jump into the exercises. I do want to um, talk about what you just mentioned there, which is... Um, 
I've been thinking about this lately, and I actually think it's useful to think about it as two different concepts. There's problem solving, and then there's actually problem defining, which I think is one of those more ethereal skills we don't think about. You kind of learn just by running into lots of problems, and that's one of the fundamental differences that you notice between a developer who's worked in a production environment and a developer who has gone through tutorials and learned some, you know, learned some of the fundamental information, but they don't really understand how do I actually take those tools and then apply it to real problems. And so one of the things I'm hoping that students will come out with is the ability not only to be handed a problem and then solve it, but also the ability to define their problem, um, break it up into parts, and even make choices like some time so to go into the exercises um i have this one exercise that uh, I'm, I'm a huge nerd so there's going to be lots of references to dungeons and dragons um pokemon uh inspector gadget uh, there's there's all sorts of uh, lord of the rings um so there's there's lots of stuff like that in there and one of the exercises is to teach you about um protocols and so whenever i'm whenever i'm building the lessons i try to start with the exercises first as much as possible and try to get an understanding, like, what do I want the student to be able to do? And so in this one, they're working with a 2D battle map, and their goal is to uh, build, like, a tactical RPG game. And they're building out some of the initial functionality, which is just determining, can one character attack another character on that battle map? And so they're working with, you know, lists of lists, and they're going to have multiple different characters, and different characters will have different attack patterns. So for example, there's a barbarian, the barbarian can attack in kind of a square. Uh, there's a wizard who's you know, casting magic and so they can attack in a straight line in any direction. And you're given the coordinate of an enemy and you need to determine, can the barbarian attack that enemy? Can the wizard attack that enemy? And it's supposed to, now however the students solve that is however they solve it. I'm not trying to enforce that they solve it the way that I want them to, even though it's an exercise specifically designed with protocols in mind, where they would essentially create a um, character protocol or some sort of like a can attack protocol, whatever the name is. Um, and they would have a character module that would be given a character struct, like a wizard or barbarian, and then the coordinate of the enemy. And so most likely the most straightforward way to solve it given the reading material that they just had is to make a protocol, define an implementation for wizard and barbarian, and then write in the logic for that. The fun part of this is having people as part of a cohort, especially early on where people's skill levels are going to be all over the place, is you'll sometimes find that people solve it in different ways. Like uh, take rock, paper, scissors, for example. Um, the first one, you, you only have operators, so there's not too many ways to go about it. But if you are coming from a different background and you already know some elixir, you might already know about functions, you might already know about some control flow. Some students, when I say, all right, like now that we've done that exercise, what are some of the solutions? That'll be this moment to have a dialogue about, oh, hey, we haven't covered this tool that the student used. What is that? What do we think it is? And, and get the student to also explain it. So big believer in collaborative learning as well as the power of teaching to learn. Um, that's how I learn. So <laughs> um, hopefully it's useful for other people as well. So getting the student kind of talk through their answer. And um, I, I think I full monologue there, so I'll, I'll let you jump in, but I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I think Brian wants to jump in. Hello. Uh, yeah, I got a question. Uh, it's, uh, you said that 
one of the uh, examples regarding Inspector Gadget. Um, and so where do Inspector Gadget's helicopter blades come from? Because they seem to come out of his hat, but they're about like three foot solid steel blades. And there's at least two of them. So they coming up through his head, like they got to be coming through his body, right? Have you given any thought to this? I thought, I think about this, like whenever I I'm think about Inspector Gadget. Like so rollers like, and hinges? But what is he? He's not a human. Is he a cyborg? Isn't there a whole origin story? I can't remember Inspector Gadget's origin know. story, just but I thought like, he was a person and then got modified. No, they just kind of, from what I recall, they just kind of jump into it. Like they don't get, they kind of like the, the end, the opening sequence kind of gives you the basic idea. You have, was it Dr. Claw, Professor Claw? You know, he's not, he's the bad guy, obviously, because they only show his fist and they show his cat. And then they show Inspector Gadget, like whizzing around on his helicopter head and, uh, you know, go, go Gadget arms. But the whole, whenever I watched Inspector Gadget as a kid, whenever his helicopter blades would pop out of his head, my first thought always went to, where are those coming from? I've never seen a satisfactory answer. This is the kind of thing where, like, the people who made the show didn't think about it at all, right? But well, then, like, probably the internet, on the internet is, there's probably a Inspector Gadget wiki out there where, like, super fans are like, no, 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 in episode three, in the shadows, you can see this thing. And that's why we all know <laughs> that the origin story. Like, hey, man, I got this idea. Yeah. There's this guy. There is an origin story. <laughs> there is an origin. Okay, what's the origin story? All right, I just pasted it in the chat. Uh, you so, Inspector Gadget's backstory is just as ridiculous and tragic as you would think. Another important aspect of uh, oh, was he rebuilt? It never, it never came up during the show's original run. Was how or why he became a half man, half machine? But in an official 1991 trading card, but an official 1991 trading card answered those questions. Inspector Gadget was an ordinary police officer. In quotes named John Brown, who fell down a flight of stairs after slipping on a banana peel. When he awoke from an operation, he had more than 13,000 crime-fighting gadgets attached to his body. Okay, so first of all, like, how, bi- how, t- how, how big was the staircase that he fell down? I mean, that must have been crazy. And I don't want to make light of, you know, real accidents like that, but the Inspector Gadget idea. And then 13,000 gadgets? So we have not even cracked the nut on what Inspector Gadget is, like his potential. He's really a TARDIS in human form. So bigger on the inside, there's, it's limitless. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my contribution right. to the round that, table. How's that for Brian? Yeah, Brian's dropping and right. derailed the whole conversation. I have to go Brian, into another meeting. Brian Cartarella. <laughs> Frank you, Cardarella, you. founder and CEO of Dockyard. Thank you for for, uh, <laughs> for bringing in that topic. We're, we're going to wait for you to do an you know, official it's, it's either It's either here or Twitter, so pick your poison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Can we, can we get this back on the rails? I'm not sure if we can. What do you think? Uh, so... Uh, Actually, Brian, I did have a question for you. I was going to ask you at the beginning. Uh, so, as far as like this this whole program of doing a developer academy that we're that we're trying to put together, mm-hmm. uh, what's how what Brooklyn talked about how we would measure success for students. What's success yeah. for Dockyard with this? Success for Dockyard is um, 
So the advantage that we have over other companies that are selling education services is that they are effectively a for-profit model. And so they are incentivized to um, you know, push statistics that uh, you know, really claim their you know, the conversion rate or the, the graduation rate and so on, grow the cohorts. And it's more kind of like you know, data in, data out type model. Uh, we are incentivized because Docker is a consultancy. Our primary revenue is tied directly to our consulting services. And our consulting services are uh, technologically tied uh, to Elixir. And so what we can do as a company to grow the adoption and make it easier for companies to say yes to Elixir as a solution ultimately benefits Dockyard in the long run. You know, we, we, have to, uh, we have to believe that Dockyard's position is one that we're going to be under consideration for most Elixir contracts. I would like to think that's the case. I, I have no idea what the raw number is, but um, I have a good sense that Dockyard is well thought of in the Elixir community. Um, and I would like to think that most companies looking to do work in Elixir, uh, Dockyard's you know, in the mix somewhere. And so if we can make it easier for companies to say, yes, you know, we, can, we should adopt Elixir. And one of the things that makes it difficult for companies to adopt Elixir is the issue around how can we build a team around this technology? You know, this has uh, <clears throat> been a topic of conversation for several years now. Um, and so uh, this is why we want to do what we can as a company to create new Elixir engineers. If we're adding to the supply, of Elixir engineers that are out there, then um, we're helping, we're doing a service to Dockyard eventually at some point in the future, as well as, you know, just the general ecosystem. You can have, you have to think that, you know, Dockyard has, uh, uh, let's say we, you know, we get on average 25% of the companies looking to do work in Elixir, you know, email Dockyard looking to work with us. Let's just say that's the number, no idea what it actually is. Um, and there's only about a hundred companies per year looking to do work in Elixir. If we can increase the number of companies per year and yeah, that's going to result in a, like a, a decrease in our percentage just because there'll be more players and more consultancies that get into a more active market. Um, but our raw numbers will go up, right? The, the, um, we will kind of like rise with the tide, so to speak. And so this is why not only is Dockyard incentivized to put together a program to uh, create new, new Elixir engineers. And I, I missed, you know, most of the conversation. So I don't know, Brooklyn, if you had brought this up already. But uh, we plan on releasing all of the education content, open sourcing it. Um, I believe after the first or second cohort, after we've you know, gone through it, verified that this is working and we've worked out some of the kinks, um, we then go and just give it away. It will be under a license, and so we're going to disallow the use of it for commercial purposes, meaning that you, know, you can't go out and create your own code school around the content that Docker is creating. But if you wanted to run your, you know, your own uh, education program internally within your company, or if you wanted to, you know, if you were a consultancy and you're looking to add training and such, that is perfectly acceptable to, to use our education content 
Um, but you can't go and start like your own dedicated Elixir school and, you know, just, you know, basically get all that stuff for free. Um, and so we, you know, at most we, so we plan on running uh, three cohorts per year with an average of 10, uh, uh, you know, 10 applicants per cohort. So let's say we have the, which won't happen, but let's say we had hundred uh, percent graduation rate. That means at most we're only creating a dockyard as a company can only create 30 new electric engineers per year, which sounds like a decent amount number, <clears throat> but with kind of the trajectory that Elixir is on at the moment, I don't think it's going to be adequate. And so we have, uh, we have a good reason for giving out this, uh, this content for others to use because that's the best way to scale up creating new electric engineers. I have no interest in creating a educational company. What I do want to do is have education services so that, you know, we can, uh, be part of the solution. Um, uh, but have it kind of run in a break-even type model. So yeah, the, the, if you want to take the program and there'll be benefits to coming through Dockyard's version of the program as opposed to others, if anyone else uses the education material. Um, but the uh, you know, we're not looking to make this like a million dollar uh, revenue stream or something for Dockyard. I mean, the, I think that the the math on it right now is... I think it's like three hundred thousand dollars. So if we're talking, we're looking. These numbers aren't final, but let's just say the number, like it was ten thousand per head. Um, and so if we're producing thirty engineers per year, that's three hundred thousand dollars. You know, that's revenue. That's pre-tax. That's pre-overhead. All that stuff. So that you know, as a business, it's not a very profitable business, but it allows us to cover our our costs, and um, uh, we'll probably have to add another. Um, uh, you know, someone to help out Brooklyn at some point, whether it's, you know, the, the conducting of the classes. Um, uh, I think that the ratio of uh, one to 10 teacher to student uh, ratio is probably not ideal. We probably want to have more of a like one to five. Um, but that $300,000 should allow us to cover uh, the, the costs and uh, benefits and, you know, all the overhead of two, uh, two trainers to instructors on it. Um, beyond that, um, I don't know if Brooklyn shared this, this idea, but um, I really think that it would be great. Um, and, uh, you know, whether uh, Brooklyn implements this or someone else from the dockyard implements it, we give it to Brooklyn. But Brooklyn has, you know, his pre-existing kind of Elixir uh, newbie uh, website and content already out there. And uh, I think... The, the Elixir community would greatly benefit from a job board that was focused entirely on entry-level Elixir positions. So it's free to post. Your post uh, is good for 30 days, and but it, it you know subject to review, right? And so what we don't want is what we see sometimes in the Elixir Slack channel, where someone you know posts for one level position and they're like, oh yeah, we're also like you know 20 other positions are open too. No. This is going to be entirely dedicated towards, or I think it should be entirely dedicated towards only entry level. If your company, because that, that, like we're such a senior level technology, senior level, senior heavy technology right now, that um, it, that alone is part of the supply demand problem. Um, and, and the reason why it's so expensive to run an electric team, because even if you want to kind of average out your costs across different uh, levels of experience, 
it's probably more likely that you're going to find a high mid to a senior level talent than a than in like a apprentice level talent right now elixir so what can we do to try to increase the signal of that out there and having a place that is highly visible for companies to go and advertise first of all i think that we should be advertising and really identifying and amplifying the uh, companies that are willing to take on uh, entry-level elixir positions so i like that idea uh, but also a place that we can direct uh i see quite frequently so there's a channel in slack uh the elixir slack called jobs chat and so the jobs channel is dedicated just for people that are posting jobs jobs chat uh is more for people that are seeking positions and i i see maybe once or twice a week a few messages in there from people saying hey i was i'm currently doing technology x right but i've been playing with elixir for six months or i really like it and i want to start doing it where do i go most of the time it's crickets you know there's there's so many companies out there that are only wanting to hire senior that i think that we need uh if dockyard has influence in the community and i like to think that we do um if we can kind of influence the conversation a bit and course correct companies towards uh you know getting them entry-level positions providing them material on how to skill up their their engineers ultimately in the long run again this helps elixir's longevity as a uh sorry my dog is like trying to get in my lab um elixir's longevity as a technology solution that companies would want to adopt and uh this translates down the line to there being more potential companies that may come back to Docker and say, hey, we need your services. So it's, it's a very long play. Um, and it's not one that a lot of companies can really invest in because the return on it is so nebulous. Um, and it's really kind of like a multi-year uh, type play as well. Like we won't see returns on this for maybe at least two or three years, if that, I would imagine. Um, but let's say we get even one contract from it just one contract within a two or three year period kind of pays for itself right you know kind of pays for the entire effort of going in and doing this so i i i'm willing to uh, uh to bet some money on this i'm willing i like brooklyn's enthusiasm around this i'm really glad that you know we had a, a, a few false starts with uh, other potential um candidates in in this uh, uh on this effort and i um I think Brooklyn got on my radar from uh, might have been Smart Logics, uh, the Elixir Wizard podcast. I think that's the one Brooklyn you were you were on, or maybe it was thinking Elixir. I forget yep. which no, one, you have it right. which one you were on. And I mean, it may have been like a day or two after that was released. I just pinged Brooklyn on on Slack, and it was really nice to see how aligned he and I were on kind of just these. Uh, uh, these initiatives and concepts like i think that um unless brooklyn's just yesing me to death like he seems to be very enthusiastic and very on board with most of the uh, ideas that you know i proposed and um so it's been a very easygoing uh working relationship so i'm, I'm really glad that we uh found each other but also i'm really impressed with the progress that's been made thus far because doing content is uh is not easy you know, I think it's it's always one thing. I think a lot of people have are in in everyone's head. Everyone's always better than they are when they put it to paper. Sometimes because it's difficult, you know, kind of actualizing and really articulating your thoughts on things. And uh, 
so content production is uh, is not easy by any stretch. I uh, one, I really appreciate that. Thank you for the kind words. And and yeah, I remember that um, our first conversation for me was a lot of fun. And it, it was I was actually I don't know if I've already given you this story, but um, I was already thinking about man, Elixir really needs a boot camp. Um, I'm positioned perfectly to do that because that's been my focus is Elixir Newbie is helping new developers learn. And that's something that when I came into the community, I felt was really lacking. As you said, Elixir is very top heavy. Uh, there's a lot of senior and intermediate talent. Those are the problems that people are focusing on. And so there just wasn't a lot of resources surrounding like, hey, if you're a complete beginner or you are new to Elixir, um, there just wasn't a lot for you. and so. I was brainstorming, well, how do I start some sort of program while working a full-time job, while also doing the podcast, while also handling content creation and all of the side things in there, also sleep, I guess. Um, how do I add on to that creating a boot camp or a program or a course or something that, that could help people? So um, when you reached out and said, hey, do you want to have the ability to do that full-time and uh the resources of dockyard and all of these wonderful people to collaborate with it was like yes <laughs> yes absolutely i want to do that that is uh you know i i can't think of something i want to do more so i'm, I'm extremely excited about it that's awesome so in terms of the the content creation that you're doing right now in brooklyn what what are you feeling good about so far and what do you feel like you're what, what are the big challenges right now in putting together the rest of the material what I'm feeling good about, I'm really happy with the quality that's coming out. I'm really happy with the power that Livebook has given me, the ability to make like these, uh, use this tool called Mermaid to generate graphs. And I can make those in literal seconds as opposed to like going to some software, building it, importing it. So the power of Livebook and being able to write like code and animations and actually execute the code, and um, that has been phenomenal. So quality wise, I'm, I'm really happy with what's coming. The... One of the struggles for me that I think has been alleviated was for the first few weeks, I was working in a bit of a, um, what's the term? Not echo chamber, but I was kind of working in, in isolation. I had some people external to Dockyard look at, it, look at it, but I hadn't had a lot of internal review. So I was feeling a lot of anxiety about like, have I made enough? Is this the right direction? Um, but having more people look at it, I think has made me feel like, okay, yeah, it's, it's going in the right direction. There's enough there. Um, and then one of the things I'm definitely struggling with right now is I'm very inspired by Khan, Khan Academy, Salman Khan, as an educator. And one of the things that he talks about is what you want your variable to, variable to be is not the material covered. Um, you want the variable to be time, but most programs do it the opposite, where um, the variable is how much material you're going to cover. Like you go through a typical university course or, or even high school, and you'll go through some fundamental concepts and maybe you fail a test and that test will never be covered again. That's the grade you're going to get for that test for the rest of the year. That's how good you are at algebra, right? It's like, that's ridiculous. Um, and so figuring out, well, how do I balance my desire to let people go at their own pace? You know, some people are going to be absolute race cars and they're just going to you know, drive through it. And that's awesome. Some people are going to need to take more time with it. So how do I give people that freedom and flexibility 
within a particular time constraint and knowing exactly how long something is going to take, it's tough because when you already know the answer, you're like, oh, okay, I think this is maybe an hour long exercise. It might be double that or it might be five minutes because knowing the answer, it's five minutes. But of course, knowing the answer is five minutes, right? So figuring out the actual amount of time things are going to take to complete, I think that's what I'm currently challenged by. And I need more people to go through it to give that feedback. Well, speaking of that, and we need to wrap up here pretty soon because we've, I think we've been at this about an hour, but. Let's just do two um, episodes. <laughs> we can, we'll definitely do a follow-up on them. This is, this is an ongoing thing. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, what, what's sort of the timeline that we're looking at for trying to get the first cohort? Um, are we at the point where we would say like, should people contact us or is it too early for that? Uh, do you need like early test drivers? Yeah. So should people contact us? Yes. I just don't know exactly what for yet. Uh, let me clarify that because that doesn't sound quite right. Um, I definitely need people to beta, beta test the content and people who want to drive through it. hundred percent. I, I absolutely. Um, are we ready to collect a list of future students? That'd be more Brian's domain. Um, the we're, we're hoping to, I believe, start going through, um, I want to say June, July is our, our current target for when we want things to be ready, for students to be able to go through, to be doing kind of a beta curriculum or, or cohort one. Um, Brian will be better at answering these types of questions. Uh, right now, I'm kind of day to day just going, okay, how do I make as much as possible today in the hopes that I, I do hit those goals? But um, yeah, definitely. I, I love it when people reach out to me. I'm, I'm always available. Um, I, I, so if people want to uh, reach out directly to Dockyard, that's awesome. If people are curious and they want to uh, DM me, I'm, I'm on the Elixir Slack as well as I'm at Brooklyn J. Myers on Twitter. Um, people, people do reach out and um, I'm, I'm having some people go through the curriculum now. So. Yeah, definitely. I just don't know when the when we're ready for actual students. Um, that's Brian's domain. Awesome. Well, we are excited to see where this thing goes, and uh, I, I love the work you're doing on it so far. Cool. Well, if you have uh, uh, enjoyed watching this show or listening to this show, as the case may be, please write a review, uh, translate it into Morse code, and use it to add a bike lane to the nearest road. Thank you very much for being uh, uh, with us on the podcast.